0: Hello, and welcome to the 27th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Corp, host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we also host the hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful, fact-based information on our website, FixingHealthcarePodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin this show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American
1: life. What does this mean? Jeremy, the past week was one, if not the most problematic of the pandemic. I think of what happened as following the pattern of one, two, three. Hospitalizations now exceed 100,000. New cases are averaging over 200,000 a day, and deaths have surpassed 3,000 a day, and 300,000 in total. For comparison, the previous highest number of deaths for one day was 2603 on April 15th. Last week, there was 3,157 fatalities reported on a single day and over 3,000 on several others. And as a result of the rise in transmissions A growing number of hospitals are struggling once again for beds, critical care machines, doctors, and nurses. With any virus which increases exponentially, the rate of increase, or its first derivative, is as important as the total number of cases, since it predicts the future. Based on how fast transmission is happening, the coming weeks will be bleak. In preparation, quite a number of states have amped up their restrictions, As an example, the mayor of Los Angeles says that his city will run out of hospital beds by Christmas, and Governor Newsom imposed California-wide restrictions similar to what was done last spring.
0: Robbie, the data on the number of cases and deaths right now is very distressing. Is there any reason for
1: optimism? Jeremy, despite the devastation inflicted by the virus over the past week, It also was the most optimistic time since the pandemic began almost 10 months ago. The end is now in sight, even if months in the future. Three vaccines have demonstrated efficacy and safety with the one produced by Pfizer and its German partner BioNTech having been approved last week in the United Kingdom and as of Friday night in the United States. Margaret Keenan, a 90-year-old woman in the UK, was the first person to be vaccinated with an 81-year-old gentleman named William Shakespeare II. There are now 800,000 patients scheduled to be vaccinated in the coming weeks and up to 4 million by the end of the month, according to the BBC. Vaccinations could begin as early as today in the United States and definitely by tomorrow. In the United States government, officials expect that by February, 100 million Americans could be vaccinated, with 20 million people receiving their first two doses, their first of two doses in December. Media reports indicate, however, that the US government failed to take Pfizer up on its offer earlier this year to provide an additional 100 million doses. As such, Our nation could see a hiatus in vaccine availability from April to June, unless one of the other companies can fill the gap. To that end, it's anticipated that the Moderna vaccine will be approved in the coming weeks, although the timing for its availability beyond the first 100 million doses is unclear. And remember that to obtain the 95% efficacy, it takes two injections three to four weeks apart which means that 100 million doses will only provide immunity for 50 million people. Ending the pandemic will require 200 million people to be immune. As such, the currently guaranteed 200 million initial doses between Pfizer and Moderna between now and next summer will only allow 100 million people to be vaccinated. Half of what is needed for herd immunity in the United States. I suspect that very soon, rather than as many as a third to half of Americans being reluctant to be vaccinated, there will be an intense demand by people to be one of the first recipients. Although many people will experience side effects from the vaccine, particularly after they receive the second dose, So far, most recipients describe the reaction as mild or moderate. It includes pain and redness at the injection site, aching muscles and joints for 24 to 48 hours, and fatigue. In England, two recipients of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine with a history of major allergic problems had an anaphylactic reaction and required epinephrine treatment. This is not uncommon with vaccines. It remains too early to be sure if this vaccine and the response they had is significant, but the regulators in the UK have issued a warning for people who have suffered an anaphylactic reaction in the past to avoid the vaccine for now. Beyond the short-term reactions, it's possible there could be longer-term problems that have not yet been identified since the length of time since the phase three trials were started has been relatively short. However, based on the experience with other vaccines, almost all bad reactions happen in the first six weeks and we're past that milestone in clinical trials to date. Overall, this was a very positive week when it comes to COVID in the United States with light at the end of the tunnel.
0: In anticipation, Uh, We would be talking today mostly about details around vaccines. Listeners have sent in multiple questions. The first is from a woman who asks, I am four months pregnant and have a three-year-old son. What's the data on each of us being vaccinated?
1: Jeremy, I wish I could answer the listener's question, but the clinical trials so far have not included either children under the age of 12 for pregnant women. Ever since the thalidomide tragedy in the 1960s, pregnant women have been excluded from vaccine clinical trials and medication clinical trials due to fears about harming the fetus. The good news is that young children like her son seem relatively safe if they become infected with this coronavirus. In contrast, pregnant women, according to the CDC, are at increased risk for severe illness if they become ill with COVID-19. It is expected that the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, an independent group of experts under the auspices of the CDC, will opine in the near future on if and when vaccination should be offered to pregnant or nursing women. In the FDA approval, rather than recommending against pregnant women being vaccinated, It left the issue open. Given that there was no data, since no pregnant women were included in the studies, this was unusual and an indication that people on the various committees thought that the benefits of the vaccine would outweigh the risk for pregnant women. The agency set the minimum age for vaccination of kids at 16, although it was contentious debate as to whether it should have been 18 instead the center is worried about the lack of trials and uncertainty around dosing rather than any specific data on safety. Moderna is planning to conduct studies on children aged 12 to 18 soon. And the NIH is planning to conduct trials for children under the age of 12 in the first half of 2021. Although children rarely become critically ill or die from COVID, they often become infected To date, 1.2 million children have tested positive for COVID, and given how mild the infection often is in young children, the actual number of cases is many, many times higher than these statistics. In November, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, the number of infections in kids had increased by 28% compared to previous months, and overall children now represent 12% of all cases in the United States.
0: Another listener asked, and quote, I've heard that most of the reactions uh, happen after the second dose. What if I only take one?
1: The data indicate that protection will be very incomplete if people only take a single administration, most likely in the 60 to 70% range at best. Not only would that be inadequate for protection Of the individuals, but it would require that nearly all 300 million Americans be vaccinated to achieve herd immunity and allow a return to a more normal life. Experts are recommending that people obtain both the initial vaccination and the recommended second dose at three to four weeks later.
0: A third listener asks, Which of the two vaccines, either Pfizer or
1: Moderna, would you recommend? Jeremy, let me be clear. I am not an infectious disease or immunology expert. The information I provide comes from my reading of medical experts on the subject and listening to their recommendations. Based on that, it appears that from an efficacy and safety perspective, the two vaccines are essentially equivalent. The difference between a 95% and 94% efficacy isn't statistically significant. And the reported side effects from each vaccine seem equivalent, although the data isn't available to do a direct side-by-side comparison at this point. The biggest issue when comparing them is the cold storage requirements, something that will influence distribution of each More specifically, the Pfizer vaccine requires super cold conditions, minus 70 degrees centigrade, meaning it will require special units for transportation and distribution. While the Moderna one only needs a a minus 20 degree level for vaccine stability, which is achievable in commercially available freezers. As such, the Pfizer vaccine is more likely to be sent to areas of large populations, urban areas and bigger hospitals that will have the more advanced refrigeration required, while the Moderna vaccine would work in small facilities, suburban locations and rural geographies. The current sequencing of the initial vaccine release reserves it for the 20 million or so healthcare workers and four million patients in nursing homes. Since there is institutional leadership at both, this would allow a logical process for risk stratification and administration. Vaccination of these individuals is expected to take approximately three weeks. Who will be next on the list remains uncertain, and how the order will be determined in each state, unclear. Although the CDC will offer recommendations, the final decisions will be made at the state and local level under the auspices of each of the governors. We can anticipate that the earlier recipients will be people at greatest risk due to their occupation, such as bus drivers and school teachers, and health status will be important, particularly relative to chronic diseases. What we don't know for this first round will be how many chronic diseases do you need to qualify, which ones will count, and whether you'll be required in some way to confirm your health status, or can simply say that you have the problems allowing you to move to the front of the line. Most Americans will need to wait at least until summer before qualifying, based upon the number of vaccine doses likely to be available. We'll have more information on our future episodes of Coronavirus, the truth as it becomes available.
0: Does the equivalency of two vaccines mean that you can take one the first time and another the second?
1: This question has not been studied, so we don't know how effective that would be. The current recommendations, however, are against it. The reasoning is that the two vaccines aren't identical in structure, and at least for now, the recommended timing is different with the Pfizer vaccine's second dose being administered at three weeks while the Moderna vaccine's second dose is given at four weeks. The immunization information systems in each state will record the specific vaccine each recipient was given in case people are unsure when they return for their second immunization.
0: Another listener said, I had COVID this spring, and it was no fun.
1: Should I get vaccinated when my turn comes? Jeremy, the current recommended approach for people who have been infected is to get the vaccine anyway. This recommendation is based on how much we don't yet know about COVID. Specifically, we can't tell how long antibodies last after infection. If people can become reinfected, and whether the antibodies produced by having the disease versus vaccination are the same or potentially additive. Moreover, since there's no evidence in the studies done so far that the vaccine poses risks to individuals who have been infected, vaccination seems to be the most prudent approach and the one that's currently recommended. Of course, at this point, there's still so much we don't know about these vaccines. Not only can't we be sure how long they'll protect people for, but we don't even know if people who have been exposed to the coronavirus might be able to transmit the virus to others even though they personally are protected by the vaccine from becoming sick. Phrased differently, the vaccine protects people who encounter the virus and limits its replication. However, during the time between the virus entering the body and the immune system eradicating it, transmission theoretically could occur to others. As such, don't expect masks and social distancing to end any in the near future. One thing is certain. Anyone with an active infection should avoid going to a vaccination center or doctor's office due to the risk of transmitting the virus to those around them. It appears that gaining immunity after vaccination takes a few weeks, while becoming infected usually happens in a matter of five to 10 days. It would be problematic if people became sick after getting the vaccine because it had not yet led to the immunity, which would develop days and weeks later.
0: Robbie, what's the status of vaccines in other countries?
1: Both Russia and China have produced vaccines that are administering them. We mentioned the Russian one called Sputnik V in our last Coronavirus The Truth episode. Rollout was begun prior to the completion of phase three testing. The Chinese vaccine developed by a pharmaceutical company called Sinopharm has been given to almost 1 million people according to governmental sources. The UAE is planning to administer this vaccine in the future they claim the vaccine has been shown to be 86% effective. I don't believe, however, that there's been any published data confirming this level of success.
0: Listeners have loved our recent discussions on you know, the various uh, false information, conspiracies, etc. Um, the only thing we've really had pushback on is our viewpoint that the approach Sweden took isn't working. Um, is there any new information on that?
1: For proponents of the Swedish approach, recent events and data have been negative. The country saw a major increase in infections, hospitalizations, and deaths recently. In response, the government abandoned its reliance on voluntary compliance to scientific recommendations and implemented mandatory social distancing including bans on large gatherings, defined as more than eight people, restrictions on alcohol sales, and mandatory high school closings, as well as mask wearing requirements similar to other nations. The hope had been that over time, the rate of transmission and mortality in Sweden would decline to the levels of surrounding Scandinavian nations like Norway. Instead, the gap widened. So far, the death totals by nation are 878 in Denmark, 415 in Finland, 354 in Norway, and 7,000 in Sweden. In response to the massive surge in Sweden, the neighboring countries have closed their borders to Swedes for the first time since World War II. Of interest, even the promised economic benefits of Sweden's laissez-faire approach have failed to materialize. In the first half of the year, the country's GDP fell 8.5% and unemployment is projected to reach 10% by year's end. Those numbers are worse than nations like Germany that took a hands-on approach and are continuing to do so. In fairness, some of that difference was that unlike most other nations in Europe, Sweden offered far less stimulus money and added government funding for businesses.
0: Robbie, the CDC recently changed its guidelines on the required length of quarantine. What is this new length, uh, what happened, and
1: what do you think? The CDC reduced its 14-day quarantine recommendation to 10 days or seven days after a negative COVID test. The new guidelines are a combination of science and reality. The data says that although transmission can happen up to two weeks later, it's uncommon. And the reality that few people were actually following the guidelines also led to the change. As such, having more people quarantined for 10 days or even for seven days with a negative test in the last two days and continued mask wearing for the next week would be far more effective at limiting spread than continuing to impose restrictions that most likely would be ignored. Whether these more liberal guidelines will prove more successful in garnering adherence remains to be proven. But a recommendation followed, even if less strict, is far more successful at controlling the coronavirus spread than one ignored. Jeremy, as you know, I'll be publishing my monthly musings tomorrow, which listeners who are not already subscribed to can do so at no cost through the website RobertProMD.com. In my monthly musings, I post questions to the over 10,000 readers on issues that are on people's minds. So let me ask you one that I've posed in the past. How anxious are you to be vaccinated and how long will you wait before doing so? Robbie,
0: the speed at which we've seen the vaccines made for the coronavirus, uh, I mean, it's literally a miracle of modern science. And I'll preface this by saying that, you know, I am by no means an anti-vaxxer. In fact, quite the opposite. I think vaccines are amazing and they've changed the world for the better. We don't have to worry about things like polio or smallpox anymore. That being said, I don't think I would be comfortable being one of the first people to take the vaccine, uh, just because of the speed at which this came out and the limited number of people that have already taken it. Um, First off, I do feel like the vaccine should be prioritized for those most at risk and frontline healthcare workers anyway. But even after that, I kind of want to take a wait and see approach just to make sure that You know, that there aren't reactions or negative consequences of the vaccine popping up after we're starting to inoculate significantly more people. Robbie, I have heard the coronavirus may have been in the U.S. longer than we thought. What's the evidence and what does it mean?
1: Jeremy, you're correct. Recent evidence points to the coronavirus having been in the U.S. at least for a month before the first case was officially identified in China. Researchers at the CDC examined blood samples from the American Red Cross from people in nine states, and they could identify antibodies against this virus in the blood of people from California, Oregon, and Washington, who donated between December 13 and 16, and in the blood of people from six other states, Massachusetts, Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa, Connecticut, Rhode Island, that was collected in the end of December and first two weeks of January. This research shows how hard it can be to recognize when a new viral infection is beginning and why the ability for countries to respond quickly and aggressively is so vital.
0: Robbie, Biden will take office in January. Um, what's likely to be different in his approach as compared to Trump? And uh, how likely is it to be successful in your opinion?
1: Jeremy, we can expect that the new president will be far more aggressive in making recommendations. He'll rely on teams of scientists and he'll promote the broad use of face masks and social distancing. At the same time, as a pragmatist, it's unlikely he will use law enforcement to require adherence to the recommendations. Unfortunately, until a sufficient number of people are vaccinated, we're likely to see the number of cases, hospitalizations, and death continue to remain high. Hopefully, with a vaccine now available, people will be more cautious, knowing the end is in sight. Hopefully they'll have more confidence in the government recommendations and follow them more closely than they have done in the past. And of course, by administering the vaccine broadly in nursing homes, we will protect the most vulnerable from becoming sick and dying. What's most likely is that President Biden will seize the moment to make investments to better protect people from the next pandemic, including making certain that we have the protective equipment needed and being certain that the vaccine laboratories and companies are prepared to respond at the first sign of a new pandemic coming.
0: I read that healthcare spending has gone down this year. Robbie, is that true and, and what does it mean?
1: Once again, Jeremy, you're correct that for the first time since data on the topic began to be collected, which was in 1960, healthcare spending in the US declined year over year, albeit only around 2%. The reason for this decline, of course, is that many people deferred treatment this year out of fear of coronavirus exposure. It is worrisome that cancer prevention is down with women who feared having a mammogram not doing so due to risk of exposure, and individuals over the age of 50 not wanting to risk contacting the virus in order to have a colonoscopy performed. But at the same time, the experience of the past 10 months will allow physicians to learn more about what works in healthcare and what doesn't. Even before the pandemic began, our nation struggled to prevent chronic disease and avoid complications from hypertension, diabetes, and heart disease. And with deaths from COVID closely associated with these illnesses, hopefully physicians will learn from the experience and do better at prevention and management in the future. In addition, hopefully their positive experience with telemedicine will encourage doctors to offer this convenient and less expensive service to their patients going forward. Our nation is the most expensive when it comes to healthcare in the world, most often at twice the cost per person as other nations, with outcomes that lag the other 11 most industrialized nations. It'll be interesting to see what researchers find when they analyze the past year. How much of what was omitted were life-saving preventive tests? And how much were the 30% of procedures and treatments shown to add no value? In our Fixing Healthcare podcast, the current season is focused on the culture of American medicine. From that perspective, a cultural perspective, COVID has brought out the best in doctors and nurses. Many have worked tirelessly, despite inadequate protective gear, to save the lives of patients, often working 12- and 24-hour shifts at a time. The current pandemic, however, has also highlighted the short-sightedness of the ways that our nation prioritizes intervention over prevention how our medicine has failed to embrace 21st century information technology, and how often doctors recommend treatments and procedures that are shown to add no value for patients. With an end in sight to this pandemic, hopefully our nation will begin the process of transforming its current healthcare system. And by doing so, Once again, make American medical care the best in the world.
0: As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthcarePodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message via LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth and have a great day.